You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 1, let's look there. And let's stand as we uh, open the scripture and... um, No, I, we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We do that as a biblical precedent as well. Um, if you read the book of Ezra, am I on here, Brother Gabe? Am I good? Okay. Um, if you read the book of Ezra, when they opened the Word, they stood. And uh, if we ever get to the point where it just, when I say Nehemiah chapter 1, if you just want to go ahead and stand, I think it'd be a, that's a pretty biblical thing to do. Unless so. Unless I tell you not to, just feel free to stand up and, and we're going to try to do it as biblically as we can. You know, this is, this is God's revelation of, of himself to us. It's God's expression of himself to us. And uh, this is a book to be respected. And, and so if we respect it, let's just go ahead and stand whenever we open it. And uh, there'll be preachers come through or other preachers come in. And if they, they don't want to have you stand, I'll, you know, wait for them to tell you. But... When I, unless I tell you differently, go ahead and stand up and honor the reading of God's word. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll begin reading in uh, verse, well let's just read verse 1 from, the, from there all the way down to the end of the chapter here. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem, and listen to the report here. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also was broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire." And it came to pass when I heard these words, notice his response, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. If you'll notice the tone shift there at the end, the prayer maybe shifts a little bit of its focus uh, to what Nehemiah was about to have to go do. Was about to step in and request something of the king. And that's why he ends the way that he does. And there's some things about this prayer that we can learn from. And then there's one big idea that I would like to apply as a principle from the text that I hope will be a help to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your word. And, and God, I've already said it. And I just am grateful that we can respect it and that it's something that we can trust. We come to you tonight because... Uh, and open the Bible because you have something to say to us. And I pray that you would help, help us to do justice to the text tonight, not just in the presenting of it, but also in the receiving of it. Help your people to be open to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I appreciate your standing. <clears throat> At this point in our story, Nehemiah has heard about the condition of Jerusalem. We just read that. And for those of you who haven't been here weekly in the, uh, in the messages, in the series on Nehemiah, Nehemiah is living in Persia. He's serving as the king cupbearer. But many of the Jews have migrated back to Jerusalem to settle back in Israel. The problem is, though, that the walls are broken down. So the walls around Jerusalem are broken down. They've been taken down by the enemy or they were never built back up um, after the last conquest of Israel. And, and because of that, the city and its people and the temple of God sit unprotected. And the people were suffering great persecution. According to verse 3, they were suffering persecution at the hands of their enemies. And so someone needed to rebuild the wall. And it turns out Nehemiah is the guy for the job. Now, this is a job I don't think that I would want. It's, a, it's going to be a great task, a huge task, a great undertaking. But Nehemiah was the right guy for the job. And we've seen that a few times already. What about Nehemiah allowed God to use him in such a special way? Well, we saw that he cares about the important things. And by that, I mean that Nehemiah cares about God's people. We know that Nehemiah is... Uh, I don't know that I'm on here. Nehemiah cares for God's people. Just to make sure here. Maybe Gabe, am I... Showing here that I am. Sorry for the awkward pause here. I'm on up here, so I'm not sure. Hi, welcome to Eastside Baptist Church. <laughs> Let's start over. Um, Nehemiah cares about the important things, and he cares about God's people. He obviously cares about God's work, he cares about God's house. And you could say it this way, that Nehemiah's primary life concern was for God. Uh, he's not a man living for himself. And, I, you know, as, as we think about what he was willing to do in this situation, Nehemiah was willing to set aside his own livelihood. He was willing to lay it all aside. He was willing to even risk his own life to go into the king and re make this request to allow him to go back and rebuild the wall. You could say it this way, Nehemiah's primary life concern, his primary focus on life, his primary attention was before God and to God. But he didn't just say he cared about the things of God. 
he didn't just say, well, yes, I'm concerned about the things of God. Yes, I, I love God. Yes, I love his people. Yes, I love the things of God. I love his house. Nehemiah was one of those guys that didn't just say that he loved it. He actually took steps to prove that he loved it. He took steps to say, yes, I am not just saying that I'm all in. It's not just lip service. Uh, I am willing to take some steps to do it. And, and I think in, in many areas of life, in many ways, uh, a lot of people will say that they're committed to something or that they care about something, uh, but they may not even do something about it. It's lip service. And I know that can happen in churches. I know that there are people that would say, oh, yes, I care about outreach. But maybe during the week, those same people rarely ever give out a track or they very rarely ever invite somebody to come and attend a service. Or they say, well, yes, I'm all about missions. I love missions and I love the thought of going to other countries and, and, uh, and telling people about Jesus Christ, but they don't give to missions. And by the way, I know I use this as an opportunity to say uh, you haven't focused very much on, on missions giving, but... Let me just say that you ought to be, as a member of Eastside Baptist Church, you ought to be involved in giving to missions. You know, it is the church's, great, the church's mission is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is to take the gospel to the world, not just even to across the street. I mean, to take it around the world and let people, all nations, hear about Jesus Christ. If you're not giving to missions, then give to missions. Everybody ought to be involved in that. Church members, you know, sometimes we say, yes, I love my church. Yes, I love the members of Eastside Baptist Church. And I have concern about the members of Eastside Baptist Church. And, and you know what we can do sometimes? We say, I care. But, but then, and I'll say, yes, I'll pray for you. Or yes, I'll pray for you. But don't say that unless we really do pray for each other. You know, um, be, be, we ought to be people of our word. If we really do truly care about each other, then we'll pray for each other when we say we will. So Nehemiah, he, he didn't just say the right things. He took steps to make the important things possible. He, makes, he took steps to make the important things happen. Look at verse 4. This is a wonderful response from Nehemiah. Am I, so I'm, are we, not, we got nothing tonight? Okay. Um, his wonderful response. Look at verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted. And prayed before the God of heaven. I just want you to think about Nehemiah's wonderful response here. It says, when I heard these words. See, what Nehemiah, what prompted him to take the steps that he did is that he heard truth. And listen, you, cannot, you can't fix what you don't know. You can't fix something unless you know that it needs to be fixed. If you don't put yourself in the position to be exposed to truth, how can you expect to see and make the changes necessary? And by that I mean, how often do you expose yourself to truth? And, and I don't just mean even in a church service like this. I mean, when we come here, we are exposing ourselves to truth. And you ought to expose yourself to truth here. But I think even though even God's people that, that make God's house a priority and they attend, I think God's people can come and sit. And then when the preaching begins, their mind, minds wonder and their minds race and, and their brains go somewhere else. And the reason I can say that with authority is because I sat where you sit for most of my life. And I know how easy it is to just come and sit, and when the preaching begins, you tune it out. But listen, we need exposure to truth. 
The truth must be our mirror. And I don't mean just three times a week, uh, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean every day in your life. You know, you don't look in a mirror just on Sundays. Some, for some guys, it looks like that's the only time we ever look in a mirror, I know. But, but if you only look in the mirror on Sundays, the rest of the week is going to be a mess. We need the mirror. We need the Bible as God's mirror. We need exposure to truth. You've got to expose yourself to truth to know that something needs to be fixed. So he said, I heard the words. And then he says, I sat down and wept. Nehemiah stopped all activity. And this is important. When a need arose, I love that Nehemiah didn't just assume he could go fix it. We had men's prayer meeting over in, the, in my office last night. We had the best number we, we've had since I've been here. We had about 12 men. It was a real blessing, and I'm thankful for it. And while we were talking about it, uh, I think it was Brother Dana said, you know, we're fixers. Men are fixers. We like to fix things. And, and my wife, had very many times, has come to me with something, and I thought she wanted advice. I thought she wanted it, me to tell her, here's what you need to do to fix this. But she didn't want that at all. As a matter of fact, all she wanted was for me to listen and then hug her. That's it. So men, there's some good marital counseling right there. They don't always want it to be fixed. Well, men are fixers. And my natural response very often is to to try to fix a situation. As soon as a need arises, I think, okay, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I have to take care of this. These are the steps I need to take. But that's not what Nehemiah did. I mean, Nehemiah didn't immediately start fixing. He didn't immediately go to his friends. He did not immediately start telling everybody, you never believe what Jerusalem's like. The walls are broken down. Things are in disarray. And, uh, and we've got to figure something out. He didn't immediately um, go to his friends. He, we've got to be in the habit, like Nehemiah was, of going to God before I, we take our need to other people. You know, he's our, you know, we can go to friends and we can go to Facebook and we can be fixers and we can... You know, be, uh, be the kind that, that as soon as something happens, we're asking everybody to pray about it. You know, I, I think it'd be good for us uh, as, a, as a point of integrity to not ask a church to pray for something we haven't already prayed for ourselves. You know, what I'm saying is that Nehemiah didn't lean on everybody around him to do things that he could have done himself. He took his prayer request to God. He didn't immediately get on Facebook and tell everybody about it. No, he, he went to God himself. He sat down and wept. And sometimes I think that we think that the immediate response to a need is to start getting active. I've got to jump into action. I've got to take these steps. Well, no, sometimes when you have a need that's far bigger than anything you can answer... The one thing that you need to do is stop and seek the Lord. That's what he did. And then he mourned. The Bible says he mourned certain days. And you say, you know, mourning, that's the kind of thing you do when someone passes away. And, and, but, God, but Nehemiah had such a heart for the things of God that he was in mourning. And we'll find out he wasn't just mourning because the walls were broken down. There was something much deeper than that for him. And, and when we sin before God... The Bible says in Matthew 5, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you know it's a natural response when you commit sin before God to not just carry, no, say, okay, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that, and carry on about your day. But there is a mourning process that I think we miss out on as Americans because we're so busy, we've got to get to the next thing. Sometimes we need to stop and we need to mourn about our sin and our standing before God. We should be broken about it. 
A godly person's response to God's judgment on sin should be sorrow. So he mourned certain days and then he fasted and prayed. Now if if prayer is the most neglected Christian virtue, I would say fasting is all but ignored. And if you really want to find or seek God's face in a moment of brokenness, seek it through fasting. And it's not a practice that many get involved in. It's maybe not even a practice that many people understand. But fasting in the Bible was when you really needed God's power. And you really needed him him to hear you. And it was never for a selfish reason. It was always for something that was big. Something connected to God's kingdom and his purposes. It was never about, oh God, I really need this one thing to come through for me. No, the fasting very rarely had that focus. And if you'll notice, Nehemiah's focus when we get to the prayer, it was not on himself. You know, fasting is the abstinence of something physical for spiritual purposes. You know, fasting is a very scriptural practice. Fasting is something that Jesus Christ even encouraged his followers to do. When they didn't have the power to cast out a devil, Jesus Christ said, This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. If you really need God's power, if you really need God's help in your life for something, seek him through fasting. And what's interesting is that he said it was certain days. He mourned certain days and fasted. In other words, this wasn't just a quick fast. And sometimes we think fasting is, I skipped breakfast this morning. Honestly, that's the only kind of fasting that I enjoy. If I miss a meal, I don't really enjoy fasting at all. But if I miss a meal, I consider that a sacrifice. That's not really fasting. Nehemiah mourned and fasted certain days. If we have a true need, if we are seeking God's face about something, we ought to seriously seek him. And fasting or praying for a certain number of days is a very biblical precedent. So the capstone then of Nehemiah's response to this is prayer. It's how we communicate with God. And Nehemiah prays one of the most wonderful prayers uh, in all the Bible, in my opinion. And as he prays, his prayer reveals two things. It reveals a lot about Nehemiah and, and then it teaches us how to come before God. Now we've been in the last few weeks talking about on Wednesday nights talking about prayer. So this kind of goes along with some of that, but prayer is probably the greatest revealer of your spiritual condition. Prayer is probably the greatest revealer of where you really are. If you want to understand where someone is spiritually, then what, how's their prayer life? Watch their response when a great need arises. If you want to have a good understanding of of someone's spiritual condition, listen to the expression of their heart before God. Compare the way you pray to the way Nehemiah prays here in verses 4 through 11. It makes me feel very small in my spiritual life when I think about Nehemiah's prayer. Look at it. It says, Nehemiah in verse 5, and said, I beseech thee. First of all, Nehemiah is begging God. And you don't usually beg for something unless you're desperate for something. Nehemiah is beseeching. It's a term of humility. It's a term of begging. And he says he's beseeching. You know, it it was kind of, uh, he's praying to our Father which art in heaven. That's what we we talked about this past Wednesday night. And, And that's exactly what he says. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. So he's begging God, and he's not just begging any God, he's begging the God of heaven. It even says the great and terrible God. Now, I love these words here. The word great means much more than us. It's easy to understand. The word terrible 
We usually use it to be negative, don't we? Say, oh, that's just terrible. That's just awful. That's terrible. And we link those two as synonyms, but that's not what the word terrible really means. Terrible means to cause astonishment and awe or to inspire reverence or godly fear to make afraid. Someone that is terrible makes other people afraid. Now, I'm not saying that God is a God that we should be afraid of. I'm talking about fear in terms of respect. Fear in terms of reverence. God does inspire awe when you think about who he is. He has that kind of power. He should make us afraid. Not afraid of what he might do to zap us this or here or there. But because we know just how powerful he is. We ought to think, well, he's a God like nothing I'm even familiar with. I'm full of terror, not that I am afraid of his motives, but that he has that kind of awe-inspiring power. See, the point is, spend time when you pray exalting God for who he is. Spend time exalting God for his characteristics, for his traits. Another thing about Nehemiah's prayer, he says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. So you think, well, what is he talking about now? Well, um, he's talking about God's covenant with, with Israel. Now, we could go to Exodus 26, and this is a reference to Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. It says there, and showing mercy unto thousands that love me and keep my commandments. By the way, that verse is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Okay? It's right in that same line, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all, or no, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right in the middle of all of that, you know what God says? And showing mercy unto thousands that love me and keep my commandments. See, a lot of people look at the Ten Commandments and they say, well, it's a sign that God is a God of terror. God's a God of wrath and he's hard and he's hateful. But in the middle of even the Ten Commandments, he says, I will show mercy to the thousands if they'll simply obey me and keep my commandments. He's a God of mercy. And is that covenant that, that Nehemiah is referring to because God is a covenant God. And this may get a little technical, but I want you to just, just to catch up or stay here with me for a minute. See, God formed the Abrahamic covenant with Israel when he called Abraham. That Abrahamic covenant is eternally binding. That Abrahamic covenant was a, a, a permanent covenant with Israel. Uh, it was binding. It was sovereignly established and eternally. It, it, it is something that God will always keep. But he also made a Mosaic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was given to who? Abraham, the Mosaic, I'm giving you strong hints here. The Mosaic covenant was given to who? Moses. I'm glad you didn't say Joseph or Paul. The Mosaic covenant. This Mosaic covenant, we just read it. He'll show mercy unto thousands that love me and keep my commandments. And many other verses in that same area of the Bible. Basically, that Mosaic covenant was conditional. It was temporal. God gave Israel the law through Moses and said, basically, obey this moral law and I'll bless you. So we could then say the opposite would be true. If you do not obey this moral law, then what? I won't bless you. So Israel, did Israel keep its end of the bargain? In general, no, they did not. 
in Exodus chapter 19, they said when they were receiving these things from God through Moses, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they didn't. God allowed them then to be scattered. We read about that here in in, in Nehemiah's writings. God allowed them to be scattered and taken captive. Now, just bear with me. We're coming. I'm, I'm giving you an explanation of the prayer. And then we'll come down to application here in just a minute as we tie it all together. So only a remnant at this time remained intact. That's the group Nehemiah is praying for. So he's appealing to God's covenant. That if Israel will obey and keep, God's, keep Moses' law, that God would bless them. So look at verse 7. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 7, it says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou, gave, thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. So Nehemiah says, You told us, God... You told us, if you don't obey, if you transgress, I'll scatter you among the nations. And Nehemiah is reminding God. He said, we know that you said that. I'm willingly admitting that. But Nehemiah then also says in verse 9, he said, But God, you also said, if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out under the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And then Nehemiah says, Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Do you get the idea of what Nehemiah is doing? He's appealing to God's own words. He's reminding God of his promises. He's saying, God, you said this. You made this covenant. You said, yes, you did say, if we don't obey, you'll scatter us abroad. But you also said, Father, if you turn unto me and you keep my commandments, even if there's a small remnant, he said, God, you said you would bring us back. And that's exciting to me. It's a helpful way for us to think about prayer in that we ought to pray. And I I talked about this a few Wednesday nights ago. Our filter for prayer is the Word of God. Very often we're praying for things that have no connection to God's words. It would be kind of like, how do you know how you're supposed to pray if you don't know what God is like? If we're supposed to pray for His will, then I ought to be in His Word figuring out what it is that He likes so that I could know what I should be praying for. Take time to understand it. God's word is the filter. And we talked about that a few Wednesday nights ago. We're seeing Nehemiah do that very thing. God, remember your words. Remember your covenant. Remember your promise, Lord. You said this. And and he's not giving him an ultimatum. He's simply reminding him of his word. And that's what he does. We ought to do the same when we pray. So he says, you know, uh, God, this is your covenant. Then I also appreciate how Moses is, or sorry, Nehemiah is involved in confession while he prays. I mean, verse 6, he says, Let now thy ear be attentive, thine ears open, that thou mayest hear the prayers of thy, prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have both sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. This goes back to last week's message out of 1 John, that confession ought to be a part of every prayer. We ought to take a time. Never assume that there's no sin between you and God. Always let him examine us when we pray and take responsibility for it when we pray. You know, the only way to not have fellowship with God is to sin. 
The only way, the only reason that we don't fellowship with our Father is because we've allowed something to block the access between us. So when you pray, confess your sins. Make sure that He knows you take full responsibility. There's no way around it. The the broken fellowship is not your fault, Lord. It is my fault. And here's Nehemiah taking responsibility honestly for sins he probably did not commit. But he's uh, he's so engrossed in his love for his nation that he's lumping himself in there together and he's confessing sin. Here's how we failed you. He's very specific about it. And then in verse 11, look at this. It says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name, and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. So what, what's happening here is Nehemiah starts his prayer by, by praying big picture. He's praying for the big things. He's praying for the things about Israel. He's praying about God's covenant. You know, this is all big picture stuff. And after he's prayed for God's will and God, in God's kingdom and the big picture stuff, he goes into a more personal request. And I think it's a good order for us. Rather than starting our prayers with all of our big needs and we've got, well, Lord, I need this and I need this and I need this and I need this. uh, We're better off to start by focusing on other things. We're better off to begin our prayer life thinking about being selfless. Not just, oh, God, what could you give me? God, what could you do for me? Well, Nehemiah prays for the big picture and then he goes to the personal request because he's about to take a request to the king. He's about to go to the king and say, uh, King, the walls are broken down. Would you allow me to do something about it? And he knows that's, that there's no guarantee the king's going to love that. So after he prays for everything else, after he prays for the kingdom requests, then he focuses on himself. Don't forget the model prayer. After the opening phrase, Christ said, start with thy kingdom come. And as he furthers into the prayer, it gets more personal. It'd be a good way for us to pray when we pray, to pray for the needs of others, for the, for the advancement of God's kingdom, and the big picture items before we ever get to ours. It helps us to not be selfless or selfish in our prayers. You know, we can often feel noble in the fact that we're praying, but you know it's possible to pray with the wrong intentions. It's possible to pray in the wrong way. Prayer doesn't start with me. So I think about Nehemiah's prayer model here, and there are some great lessons, and I'm thankful for them. Our prayer should acknowledge God's character. Our prayer should be born out of humility over our need. Our, our prayer should reflect the things that are important to God. Our, our prayer should grow out of brokenness of sin. Our prayer should confess our needs and not be about us. Those are great lessons in prayer. And we could stop right there tonight and we could say that reveals a lot about Nehemiah and it helps me to understand him more. It reveals a lot about my prayer life. But I, was, I stopped and I was thinking about this prayer and I took a step back and tried to see what's really going on here. What's really going on? What's really the big picture here? What's the principle at work? And I think that's a good way to approach a text. If you've ever studied for a lesson or you've ever stood up here to preach, maybe some of you men, you know, you're not just trying to go through the details. 
you sometimes have to take a step back and say, what's really happening? What, what really is taking place here? What's the principle at work? Because if I can give you a principle tonight, then you won't go home and say, okay, Brother, Brother Jed said, okay, I need to pray about God's character. I need to acknowledge that. I need to have humility. I need to reflect the things that are important to God. I need to uh, have brokenness of sin and confess my need, and I don't need to be about me. Check, 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 check. The prayer's done. Everything's good. Okay, I can move on. You know, as a pastor, I, my job is, uh, or my, I view my role as a shepherd of not just equipping you with a list. I want you to see a principle. I want you to understand something bigger. So, because, you know, there will be applications that I don't think of. And if you have a principle, then, then you can apply it however you need to. See, what I found interesting is Nehemiah's, in Nehemiah's response um, is what seems like He's dealing with what seems like a physical problem. Well, what's the problem? What's literally, physically, the problem that Nehemiah has come to God about? What is it? Broken walls, right? Broken down walls. The walls around Jerusalem are broken down. Somebody needs to go fix them. So my, in my carnal thinking, or, or my limited thinking, I would say that, well, Nehemiah should probably start with a wall construction manual. Now, you would think that maybe God is looking for someone that's built a wall before. But that's not how it's working. God's not looking for someone with a a resume full of finished walls and here's my portfolio, look at all these walls. They're great, they're beautiful. No, Nehemiah did not turn to his construction buddies seeking advice. I want you to consider what's taking place. We assume the problem with Jerusalem was physical because it involved walls. But based on Nehemiah's prayer, the problem is spiritual. He didn't pray about the walls, did he? No, he prayed about the nation of Israel and their standing before a holy God. He prayed about the ways that they have sinned before God. So God sought for a spiritual man, not one with construction experience. Nehemiah is the right man for the job because here's what's happening. He's not trying to fix spiritual problems with physical solutions. He saw that the root problem for Israel wasn't a broken down wall, but a broken down relationship. A broken down wall was simply a reflection of a relationship that Nehemiah knew needed to be repaired. His prayer revealed that he knew the problem was spiritual, so he dealt with it spiritually. Instead of reaching out for a hammer, he got a hold of God. See, the truth is, and here's the principle that's taking place here, you can't fix spiritual problems with physical solutions. You can cover up a spiritual problem with a physical solution, but it won't truly, really fix the issue. And, and the, the illustration that came to my mind tonight was something I think every man in here is going to appreciate, and that is duct tape. That's the best amen I've gotten all night long. Duct tape, come on. <laughs> duct tape is amazing. Duct tape fixes a lot of things, if you can start it. I'll eventually get this, get this going. I was reading about some of the things that you can do with duct tape. And 
I discovered today that you can create a temporary hem on your pants with duct tape. Wade just got animated back there. I've done it before. I read this week that you can patch a garden hose with this stuff. You can fix a leaking boat. You can even fix a car with duct tape. I've seen some cars around here that have about 30 rolls of this holding bumpers on. I mean, my favorite part, do we, do we have this ready up here, Brother Steen, uh, on the computer? If you would just arrow over to the right. My favorite, my favorite thing about duct tape is it also includes childcare. Duct tape is incredible. What a great picture to show on Mother's Day, right? You can, you can turn it off. And, and I, I say that humorously. You can go ahead and, yeah, there you go. Uh, y'all will be distracted all night if we leave that up. Listen, as awesome as duct tape is, we have to be honest about it. I'm, I'm really trying hard not to walk around here. Got to stay right here. Duct tape doesn't really fix the problem. Duct tape repairs the issue temporarily. But if something is broken, duct, as great as duct tape is, it doesn't make it unbroken. If something is not working correctly and duct tape can hold it together for a while, all it does is cover the issue so that things appear functional. See, we have a lot of Christians with rolls and rolls of spiritual duct tape and they've grown used to covering up the problems that they have or the issues that they have that are spiritual in nature, but they've gone to temporary fixes instead of spiritual fixes. You know, I think about when we have a need, and I think this is what's happening in our text here. Nehemiah had a need, and we all have needs, and they arise, and they're bigger than us, and they're bigger than something we can handle. And our first step, very often, reveals our tendencies. It reveals our mindset. It lets us know, okay, I lean on the spiritual things to solve spiritual problems, or I think I have a tendency to lean on the physical solutions to spiritual problems. If your first stop... It's to, like the Bible says about Nehemiah, that he sat down and wept. If that's your first step, great. If your first step is to seek God and that's what you do, blessing, that's a great. But if your first step is Facebook or friends or fixing it yourself, as we heard tonight, then you probably tend to use some spiritual duct tape. And you're throwing spiritual duct tape on your Christian life. And rather than really fixing the problem, we're using a temporary solution for something much bigger than something temporary. We've gone to a, we, we've gone to a physical solution to a, a spiritual problem. If there's an offense in your life and somebody has, has, has done something that offended you at some point, and rather than going to them and fixing the issue, you just have ignored it or you've covered it up or you let it linger, then you are used to using spiritual duct tape in your Christian life and you're just covering up something that's there. But listen, it doesn't really fix the offense. And there are some people, and I would, 
I would venture to say, although I don't know about these, but I would venture to say because I know what human nature is like, but even in this room, there are probably those that have been offended in the past with each other, and rather than dealing with it in a spiritual way, they covered up with Christian spiritual duct tape. The issue is still there. It's still lingering, and it's obvious in the way that you speak about someone or you speak to someone. It's obvious in the lack of unity and the lack of fellowship that you have with someone else. That offense was never dealt with spiritually. You put some spiritual duct tape on it and just acted like it just went away, but it never really did because duct tape doesn't fix the problem. We've got to go to the root, and instead of ignoring or pretending that there's not a problem, let's deal with the problem. You know, an offense between two people, between two parties in a church, I think, I believe very, very strongly that is usually the reason that a church doesn't go forward. Because its membership isn't right with each other. Maybe it's some besetting sin and you think, well, I've got this thing in my life that I need to deal with, but I don't really want anybody else to know about it. And it's, it's really, a, it's too big for me to handle. And, and I just know I'm just always going to be bound by it. And so rather than spiritually fix it, rather than really going to the root of the problem and trying to fix that issue with a spiritual solution, you say, well, I'll just serve more. Or I'll say amen louder. Or I'll get involved in something new, a new ministry. Or I'll do something to just to kind of offset what I know is going on, but it's just spiritual duct tape. Maybe there's some kind of physical problem in, in your life and you've got anxiety or there's depression or, or you've got an addiction to something. And this very often happens. We often focus on the physical symptoms. And trust me, they, I believe they're real. I mean, we can get so worked up about things that we do create physical symptoms. And, and, but rather than going to the spiritual source, the issue at hand, we seek help with temporal or physical solutions. And some drown their sorrows in food. Some try to mask their pain with alcohol. You know, and that's why, this is why we have to be careful. This mindset, well, it's a spiritual problem, but I can deal with it with a physical solution. That's why we have many, even in, in churches like this one, that rather than treating a spiritual issue with a spiritual solution, they're using medication to treat it. And trust me, I understand it's not, an, it's not easy to go through some of those things. But that medicine will dull the symptoms. It will. I think it can help it temporarily with it. But covering up spiritual issues with physical solutions is like applying duct tape. It doesn't really fix the problem. It just makes it functional. I think about parenting. We could force behavior in our children and not have their hearts involved. And if we, do, if we practice behavior modification and we train, 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 but we never raise our kids to simply do the right things uh, without loving God or loving their parents, if we train them to do right without having a heart attachment to spiritual truth, then we're creating little Pharisees. And we have taught them to function by applying spiritual duct tape to their lives. And it will be a practice that they'll probably experience their whole life unless they get victory over it. And they learned it from us. Because as parents, we never taught them to attach what they're doing to a truth. Or attach what they're doing to a principle. And we never really captured their hearts. We had their bodies and we had their hands. And they did what we wanted them to. But without their hearts, listen folks, we, we don't have our children. We've taught them how to apply spiritual duct tape. 
When I think about our church, rise and build, it's the whole context of Nehemiah. I would love for God's house to be full. I, I would. And I think most of us here would too. It's a scriptural thing out of Matthew 14. Jesus Christ in that picture said, go out in the highways and hedges, bring them in so that my house can be full. It's not, it's not wrong motive. I'm not doing it for pride's sake. I'm saying we ought to want everybody in Sioux Falls to have truth and see what their lives could be like with God's truth. We could fill it with some physical solutions. You, you're, so I hope you understand what I'm saying. There's a spiritual problem out there. And if we wanted to, we could probably make some adjustments in here... That would bring more in. We could change our music and draw a crowd. Uh, We could relax our standards and make people feel feel more comfortable. We could cater to a consumer mentality and get better online reviews. But that's just spiritual duct tape. Because a church full of people that are not disciples is not helping us toward our mission as Eastside Baptist Church of creating disciples and fulfilling the Great Commission. If we want to rise and build, we can't lean on spiritual duct tape. We can't look for physical solutions to fix spiritual problems. I'd love to see God's kingdom advance in Sioux Falls through Eastside Baptist Church. I would love to arise and build here. But if I think it's programs before prayer, I'm hanging on to spiritual duct tape. The physical solutions that many churches have resorted to are not directly dealing with people's spiritual problems. Catering to a consumer mentality... And they're full of spiritual duct tape. And I'm not judging them. I'm simply saying that we've got to be careful because the temptation could be strong. But we should stick with the things that will build disciples. We should stick with the things that will not just fill our church with people, but fill it with disciples. And there are some things that you don't make easy on people just because you want them to come. I mean, a disciple was never made... Because things got easier or looser. That's not the life of a disciple that Jesus Christ describes in in the Bible, in in the New Testament. Luke 14 and other places. You know, he's not describing um, that, okay, if you want to be a disciple, it will be a life of ease. It's going to get easier. There are fewer standards. Everything's looser. No, disciple making has never been because things got easier. It's never increased because standards were tossed no disciples are made through surrender and self-sacrifice that doesn't sound like a life of ease to me disciples are made by denying and dying to self so as a church we can't fix spiritual problems with physical temporary solutions or we'll find ourselves in a mess see nehemiah wanted god's work to continue He wanted God's people to thrive. He was concerned about protecting God's house. And his his thought was about God and his glory. But I just want you to think. The big picture here. His first step was not to go out. And get a wall building manual. His first steps were spiritual. He sought God. And his first thought was not a broken down wall. But a broken down relationship. He was not saying, we need to restore the wall. No, he's saying, we need to restore our standing with God. He didn't try to fix a physical or a spiritual problem with a physical solution. 
So as a Christian, in what areas are you applying spiritual duct tape instead of spiritual solutions? You can apply it however you you can think of, however the Holy Spirit is leading you to. If you're seeking to answer spiritual problems with physical temporary solutions, your endeavors will be short-lived. Because however great duct tape is, it's not a permanent fix. It actually isn't a fix at all. It simply covers up a deeper issue. And Nehemiah knew that. Let's not make the mistake by applying temporary physical solutions to deeper spiritual problems. It's like duct tape. It's fast. It's easy. It does the job for now. But it really can't ever truly fix the problem. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.